my name's Chris. I am uh, one of the transitional elders at Crossroad International Church. And as many of you know, we are uh, going through the book of Matthew and we are about a little more than halfway through. And if you remember from earlier on, there are about five major sections in the book of Matthew, each with a story and a discourse or teaching from Jesus. The five major teachings of Jesus allude back to the Torah, which are the five most important books of Jewish scripture. And what Matthew is doing is he's showing that Jesus' teaching is like a new Torah or a new understanding of what it means to be a part of God's kingdom, along with a new salvation. We are finishing up with the fourth story and moving into a teaching. Sorry, I guess that my time right here. Yep. And moving into a teaching, moving from the end of chapter 17 into chapter 18. Uh, so we just finished last week the transfiguration, a healing of a demon-possessed boy, and his second prediction of his death and resurrection. And we're going to start in chapter 17, verse 24. And it says, when they came to Capernaum, the tax collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do, you, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook. And take the first fish that comes up that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So I guess the first question is like, what is the two drachma tax? And this is a this is a powerful but short lesson that Jesus discusses with his prime disciple, Peter. And it's interesting to note that this is this passage is one of the most famous passages that's only in the book of Matthew. Like a lot of the, a lot of the passages overlap between Mark, Matthew, and Luke, but this is only in the book of Matthew. And I think that's very interesting because Matthew himself was an ex tax collector. That's one of the disciples Jesus called, and that's who is writing this book. So this must have had special meaning to him. So the two drachma tax, uh, it was not a Roman, but rather a Jewish temple tax. Uh, a drachma is a Greek currency that is roughly equal to about a half a shekel. And this tax dates back to Exodus 30, 11 through 16. And in this passage in Exodus, in the Torah, it talks about um, this is to be paid as ransom for each individual's life because of their sin among the people of Israel. So each person was required to give a half shekel as a ransom for his life. And this money was to go towards the tabernacle or the temple when it was built. However, there is some controversy about this tax. And even during Jesus's day, the idea of a yearly temple temple tax um, was not, uh, was debated. 
So some Jews believed during Jesus' time that this was a yearly tax, that every year you had to go in and pay this temple tax. While others, other Jews thought that this is a once in a lifetime event. And if you look back at the, at the story in Exodus, it looks like it's a once in a lifetime, but it's not very clear. Um, and according to some like rabbinic fragments that we have from the time of Jesus, these are among the Dead Sea Scrolls. They mention that this idea of a ransom or temple tax should only be done once in a lifetime. However, because of in the time that Jesus was living, this is the, the second temple. This was built by Herod and maintained by him. And so it makes sense that the Jewish leaders of the day thought it should be paid every year to keep the temple in excellent condition. And if you look at the other gospels, Mark and, and Luke especially, they allude to this because they talk about the disciples and others tell Jesus, like they're exclaiming how beautiful and excellent the temple is, which seems to follow this idea that many people thought that the temple tax was a yearly thing to keep it in this pristine condition. So these, these tax collectors, these Jewish temple tax, Tax collectors follow Peter to uh, follow the disciples to Capernaum. And instead of asking Jesus, they ask Peter. And he's obviously put on the spot by these educated Jewish tax collectors. But he just says, yes. Um, he just says, yeah. Um, I think probably just to avoid having an extended conversation or to explain things themselves. Um, but clearly this question is in his mind when he's approaching Jesus, right? But Jesus just like he did in um, when he heals the paralytic, when he looks into the minds of the Pharisees who you know, uh, are questioning Jesus's ability to forgive sin. Jesus also gets the jump on Peter by asking him a question. So he asked, the question he asked is whether worldly kings tax their sons or tax others. And of course, taxes uh, in those days were collected by the ruling party, the, the kingship or um, whoever was in charge. But those who were in, in the favor or in the um, close to the leaders, they were exempt from those taxes. And this was especially true for sons of the king because they were considered as the heirs and becoming the king some, someday. Now, in our day, this is not supposed to happen in governments, but it still does. You know, there's all kinds of issues of scandals and corruption and money being laundered and funneled into friends and family and those who um, are in the favor of the leadership. So that still happens today. So Peter says, yes, taxes uh, should be taken from others, not their own sons. So then Jesus says that the sons are free. Jesus' point is this. If the sons of kings in this world are free, are not those who are children of God, the king of heaven, exempt from paying temple taxes? The temple tax is a physical payment collected from the people to pay for God's house. But God does not need to collect regular taxes from his own children therefore showing that they are exempt from this yearly temple tax. Now, to be clear, this was a commandment by Moses, so Jesus is not opposing 
the once in a lifetime um, ransom that was issued by Moses, but rather the yearly temple tax that was maybe superseded the law or came into, into vogue during the time of Herod. Um, now he says, we're free. However, he does say that he is still willing to pay so as not to offend those who believe that it should be paid. Of course, he's God's son and doesn't need to pay the tax, nor do his disciples as those with him, as the people of Israel. You know, the, the children of God, the people of Israel are God's sons. They're, that's his chosen people. But Jesus here wants to go the extra mile to show that he is in harmony with the customs of the day. He then tells Peter to obtain the shekel by going to the sea of Galilee next to Capernaum and to catch a fish, which will have a shekel, which is about four drachmas to pay for both Jesus and Peter's temple tax. I think this is, this is a very insightful picture of Jesus himself. We know that Jesus is the son of God and he owes nothing to us as our creator. Therefore, he is exempt from paying this ransom tax issued by Moses because this was for, because that was an offering for sin to give people a fresh start with God. However, Jesus lived perfectly before God and was not under the curse of sin because he was not born with, nor did he ever commit sin. So Jesus is exempt all the way through from, from the ransom tax. However, even though Jesus is exempt, he goes so much further by being, being willing to pay the penalty for our sin, just like he paid for Peter's ransom tax. This ransom was commanded by Moses. This ransom could not truly pay for sin. First, because people would continue to sin after the ransom tax was paid. Second, because this is sin is a spiritual offense, it requires a spiritual penalty. No amount of money is going to buy our salvation. However, Jesus, he gives his life as a sacrifice for sin to be the ultimate ransom for everyone who believes that he died for them. So Jesus pays an eternal ransom for sinners by exchanging his perfect righteous life with us and taking on our sin to be punished at the cross. So Jesus takes all of our punishments, our true, the tax required for our sin, which is God's wrath. So he takes all of that, all sin, past, present, and future. In exchange, we get Christ's righteousness. So when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And therefore, we are forgiven because our ransom is paid for by Jesus. And he was not required to do this. He didn't have to do this. He wasn't forced to do this. He doesn't need us. But out of his great love for us and to allow us to be sons, he did this. So like, like the last song we sang, Jesus made a way. He is the true way maker in our lives when there was no alternative. So what does this mean for us today? I think there's lots of application for us today as well, even though this was something that happened 2,000 years ago, very specific to them. I think first, Jesus knows our thoughts and concerns better than we know them. 
Peter was thinking about and wrestling with this question. And Jesus knew the question and led him to the answer. This is the same for us. Many of us are having questions about God during this time of COVID-19. Questions like, why is this happening? When is this going to end? Are we ever going to be able to have physical church again? Why is my job in crisis? Will things get back to normal? There is so much extra strain on my marriage because we don't get a break. My kids are struggling with lack of social time and online learning. And you know what? I don't have the answer to any of these questions. Uh, in fact, if you if I you ask me every step of the way, I've called it wrong pretty much every single time. Um, from the beginning until now, I had no idea any of this stuff would happen. I was I was wrong the way I predicted it. But Jesus does. He knows he's answering these questions. He knows you have these questions. And not only does he know, but he wants you to bring these questions to him. Just as Jesus was faster than Peter to bring up his concern, he is also eager for you to communicate with him in prayer about your questions and struggle. You know, just as Eunice was said at the end of her, her songs about we all have mountains and we all have issues we're facing. That is true. And as we cry out to God, we know that he will answer them. He wants, he wants to answer these questions. Now, he may not give the answer immediately, or he may lead you to a place of further questions, or maybe he'll take you on a journey to grow and develop as you wrestle with these questions, but he will give you an answer sooner or later. My second application is that we are free in Christ. We are not under any obligation with the law, right? He says the sons are free. We are free as Christians. We can enjoy the good gifts that God has given us without having to pay him back, except for our worship to the one who freely gives. All of God's blessings are freely given, and we are exempt from any payments. We are not required to keep the old covenant, but rather just to worship our Father and God and to believe in Jesus as the bearer of our payments. It costs nothing for us. We are also not required to tithe or give to a congregation. We do not need to pay for any spiritual or physical service given among God's people. We can enjoy all the blessings of God without guilt. And the third application is, is also for us, and it's to be willing to give up your rights for others. We should be willing, like Jesus, to not give offense to others. You know, and I, I see this can, this can be a problem. You know, often I see Christians arguing with one, one another about small points of doctrine or issues or church issues. And while it's, it's a, of course, it's fine to have discussion, it is not healthy or helpful to have arguments, division, and hurt as sons and daughters of the king. Jesus fulfilled what was said in Proverbs 19.11, that it, it is a man's glory to overlook an offense. Therefore, we also should be quick to forgive, to go the extra mile like Jesus did. Yes, we can enjoy things, and we should enjoy things, all the good gifts God has given, given us. But if it causes a brother to struggle or have confusion, 
then we should be willing like Jesus or considered to be willing to refrain from these things. And this is, this is a big issue in Paul's congregation, First Corinthians 8. He talks about this at length about um, if somebody stumbles by eating meat, then we should not eat meat, sacrifice to idols, right? And of course, we are not under obligation to give to churches or Christian organizations, but I think we should be willing to ask God if and how much, because we want to bless others and not just hoard our blessings for ourselves. And the last obligation of this passage is that God provides what we need. You know, interestingly, Jesus and Peter in this story don't have any money on them. Yet Jesus provided what was needed to pay the temple tax. And he did this through the impossible, right? Imagine he directed a fish who swallowed just enough money to pay the amount of temple tax for the both of them. That's, that's pretty, uh, it's a pretty direct and, and impossible miracle. And he'll provide for you as well. Um, when Stephanie and I were first married, I was, didn't have a job. I just graduated um, with a bachelor's in, in education, but was just substitute teaching, making less than 20K a day teaching. And we didn't have any money or medical insurance. And Stephanie got sick and she, we had to go to the doctor to get a prescription. We didn't have the money to pay for it. Um, but the next day we found an envelope with a flower and just enough money to pay for the visit and the prescription. And we, had, we didn't tell anybody about this. It's not like we advertised this in our church. God just showed up and met us. Um, and there's many, I mean, there, I, I think spend the rest of the time talking about stories like this. God does meet our needs. He will give your family the finances you need. He will keep your marriage together. He will give you a break from your job or the strength to endure. And I think what's the, the great thing about impossible situations is that it allows his glory and power to be displayed most prominently. When we're in impossible situations, it allows his glory to be displayed most prominently because then we can't, we can't say in our minds or to others that we did this. So I want to encourage you to keep asking and seeking him to provide for you in your circumstances. He knows what you need. He loves you and he wants to provide for you. Now we have another passage we're going to go through here. And this passage talks about greatness, but it also carries some of these same ideas of willingness to serve and humility. And this is starting in um, chapter 8, verse 1, if you want to turn there. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So we see here <clears throat> that this, excuse me, <coughs> 
that this is a discussion among the disciples about who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And to be clear, this is about the greatest among the 12. Now, while Matthew um, make, makes this sound very, very academic, Mark kind of shows a little, sheds a little more light on it because it's a less appealing light because it adds the back to story of the disciples actually arguing with, with each other while Jesus was with Peter <clears throat> and how they kept silent because there was a sense of shame among the disciples toward Jesus about this. So if you can imagine, we're saying, who's greater? I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. Is it Peter? Is it John, his favorite disciple? Is it um, the th sons of thunder? <clears throat> Who, who's the greatest? <clears throat> and just like the previous passage turns around the idea of freedom, we see that Jesus turns the idea of greatness on its head. He calls one of the children in the group and puts him in the middle as a prop to illustrate what it means to be great. First, he says that for any, anyone to even enter the kingdom, he must be transformed to become like children. Then he repeats himself and says that in order to be great in the kingdom of heaven, we also need to be like this child that he put in the middle of the disciples. So what does it mean to be transformed into a child and humble like a child? There are many ways that children are different than adults. But I think the key difference that Jesus is referring to is dependency. Babies are absolutely dependent. They cannot eat. They can't move. They can't speak. All they can really do is cry and they can nurse. And this is what parent, why parenting is quite a bit of work, as Abiel and Dalal are finding out. Because this baby is absolutely dependent on the parents for drinking milk, getting its diaper changed, and even sleeping, right? You think sleeping as one of those things that we just do. No, we had to be trained to sleep um, over years to know how to fall asleep on our own. And even older children, children like this, the child that Jesus put in front of him, they, there's still much dependency. You know, I think of Elliot. Um, he still requires us to make him food, to cut it up into bites that he can enjoy, to give him the food. He still needs to be put to bed. He still needs help in the bathroom. He needs us still to comfort him, to play with him, to spend time with him, and to give him love and affection. So even this child, in thinking about children, they are very dependent on their parents. And all that, of course, all that cheese when, when become adults. You know, we can make and eat our own food. We can go to bed without assistance. We can make money. We can make complex decisions. We can make our, even to some extent, happy by doing the things that we enjoy. You know, if I want to go, go exercise so I feel better, I just make that decision to do that. We can also pursue relationships and friendships that can bring us the love and affection we need. And I think this is the issue that Jesus is addressing here. We can become so independent, and I'm talking to myself here too, that we think we don't need God. We can make lots of money to give us security. We can have influence and power over others. We can use our own intelligence exclusively to make decisions. We can pursue pleasure without reference to God and totally absorb ourselves in the pursuit of ourselves. Now, living this way is living proud and is the way to godlessness. 
this is the mindset of the atheist, that we make our own path and destiny and we are in charge of our lives. The, the last line of William Henley's Invictus, it says this, I think this is a good synopsis of what the world looks like without reference to God and our own independence. It says, it matters now not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, Jesus is saying this is the opposite of greatness in God's economy. Rather, this is the height of arrogance and foolishness. Jesus agrees with Proverbs 14, 12, which says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. We cannot enter the kingdom of heaven if we do not give up our dependency on God. And I think this is particularly important for us in Kuwait on this call and in our church, because most of us have high paying jobs, respectable jobs, good education, good backgrounds. Um, and I think that creates an, a uniquely strong temptation to think that we have achieved anything among ourselves and that we don't need God, not intellectually, but in our hearts. Of course, as Christians, we know we need God. But in practicality, there is a part of me that likes being called professor at my job, that uh, I like that I make good money, that I have extra income, and that strokes my ego. But that is wrong, right? This is the way to death, not life. And I think this is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. We cannot escape the bondage of our own desires and passions. We cannot be good enough to get to God. We cannot achieve righteousness. Rather, Jesus humbles himself, lives a perfect life for us, takes our punishment for our sins, and will raise us to life again, just as he was able to raise himself from death. We are totally dependent on Jesus to accomplish this for us. And this is the kind of turning or converting or transformation that Jesus says in verse three. And this doesn't end after salvation, in order to be great in God's kingdom, we need to continually relinquish our independence and we learn and grow in our dependence on God. We need to know both in our minds that everything we have comes from God and even the abilities and talents that we have can be taken away in an instant. We often think we are independent until something is taken away. And I think we have seen this some with COVID. We've all gone through hard circumstances. Family members have been separated via airports. People have lost jobs or the amounts of work or the work culture has changed dramatically. The church has not met physically in over a year. Many people we have known have permanently left the country. Friendships and relationships that have been a source of comfort and joy have been dramatically changed or eliminated from fear and quarantine and lockdowns. Um, Marriage and families are under strain because of the changing circumstances. People are both working and learning online, which is isolating. People are not spending much time outside and the future is uncertain. And these are hard and difficult things. And the, and the pain people feel is real. But I don't want us to miss. I don't want to miss what God is teaching me in this time. And I think this shows why Matthew's message here is timeless and timely. As things have been taken away, I want to learn to grow in dependence on him. Jesus is a perfect father and he wants to be close to us. 
He is the one who provides and gives our daily bread. We cannot be isolated or quarantined from God because he is omnipresent and lives in our hearts. He is the one who gives spiritual fellowship and communion with him. He is the only one who can heal and help our marriages. He not only knows the future, but he guides us through it. So how can we do this practically? I think the first thing we need to do is we need to acknowledge God and every blessing we have. Because as James says, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of light. We should pray and give thanks and both in our hearts and out loud for every meal, every time our car starts, every time we go to work, every paycheck we receive. Now, these are not to be empty words, but sometimes there's a, a phrase that you say, fake it till you make it. I have found that as, as I say these things, even if I might not feel them, those feelings will come and that will create more gratitude in my heart. I think we also need to ask for help from God. You know, we use our minds for wisdom and that is God honoring, but we should also seek his guidance and leadership in our decisions and our desires, both big and small. And then finally, we need to read and trust the Bible. As we grow in dependency, we need to trust and believe that the Bible is God's word and that the truths and principles contain the way to live a godly life. Even if they conflict with our desires, with our friends, with our culture, being dependent on God means believing and trusting his word. You know, there are many scholars in biblical studies. They are experts in it, but they are not believers. So they, do, they, they might know the Bible, but they don't believe the Bible. And we need to know and believe it. So as we conclude, let's remember that God knows our hearts and our desires and our questions. And that Jesus is the one who goes the extra mile for us. That we are free from spiritual obligations in the law, but that we should take care not to offend others and be gracious like Jesus. And we need to depend on God as a child and to cultivate this dependence. As sons and daughters of the king of the universe, we are at liberty and we need to depend on our great father. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for your word that it teaches us how to depend on you and to trust you and to know you and that we are free from sin, God. I pray for each and every one of these people on this call this evening that you would bless them, that they would be able to apply this to their hearts and that you would show yourself faithful to them as they depend on you, as they let go, that they would see that you provide for them in unique ways. And we just ask for this in your name, in Jesus. Amen.